This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Heavenly Father, yet again another week, another Sunday, and we find ourselves... beneath your word, waiting, ready, forgiven and justified. And so now, Father, we we pray as we always do that you would illuminate your words, that you would continue to grow us and transform us, that you would change our hearts and our lives. And ultimately, Father, that we would see a greater picture of who you are that we would see you in Christ and that ultimately, Father, it would give us a desire to not only be with you, but to tell others about you. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 23 this morning. We're going to start in verse 12. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the story of Hugh Latimer. He is an English reformer in the 1500s who is known for being pushy in his preaching. He's known for not holding things back. And frequently he would preach to King Henry VIII, who is also well known, mostly for getting what he wanted. Um, Whether that meant reorganizing the whole religious system that has been centuries old or murdering wives for a new one, he got what he wanted. Well, one Sunday, Hugh's sermon infuriated King Henry. He probably said something about how you shouldn't murder your wives. I don't know. Maybe he hadn't heard those deeply theological words of Kenny Rogers, you know, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. But anyway, Hugh made the king angry and he was ordered to come back a week later and apologize before he preached again. So the next week, came and and Hugh went before the king and he began his sermon by talking to himself. And he said this, and I'm paraphrasing so we can understand 1500s English. He said, Huey, don't you know who you are talking to today? Absolutely, to the high and mighty king of England who can execute me just because he wants to. Therefore, be careful not to hurt his feelings. But Hugh... But don't you know where you come from and whose message you are speaking? Absolutely, I speak on behalf of the Almighty God of heaven and earth who is ever present and able to send me to hell if he wants to. Therefore, be careful to speak faithfully. Then Hugh continued by preaching the exact same sermon he preached the week before, just with more energy. Paul knew something about that kind of moxie. And we're going to see some more of that this morning in Acts chapter 23 and 24. But we're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, What we're going to do this morning is is start by going through this text and section by section. But we'll we'll pause every once in a while to explain what's going on uh, so so we understand. But, But in the end, we're going to land on just one verse and unpack that. So to catch you up, remember last week, Paul had come to Jerusalem 
He met with James and the other elders of the church back in Jerusalem. They urged him to purify himself in the temple and to pay for those other guys to get a haircut so that that might calm down some of the other Jews who were upset with Paul, but that didn't go very well. And some Jews from Asia came and recognized Paul and said, hey, that's the guy who's been teaching the Gentiles and you know fraternizing with Gentiles and shame, shame, shame. And they got the crowd all involved and they got so upset that they were about to murder Paul. But finally, this, they call him the, uh, the uh, not the procurator, but uh, the um, tribune stepped in to save Paul. And he was about to, uh, he took Paul to the Sanhedrin to get to see if they could figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. So he got Paul all ready to be flogged, which was a common way the Romans extracted information back then. And he's got Paul all ready to go. And Paul kind of says, ahem. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? And the guy says, oh, no, sorry. Paul was a Roman citizen. He had rights, so they didn't flog him. So last week they put him back in jail, and that's where we find Paul this morning, in a Roman jail in Jerusalem, awaiting this appeal that he has made to the higher Roman authorities. Look at verse 12, Acts chapter 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he gets there. Now, this is not the first plot made against Paul, but this one gives us the most detail. <clears throat> and Luke is giving us this information for a reason. It's going to come back in a minute. But not one, not two, but 40 men conspire against Paul to murder him by way of, a, of an ambush, if they can get the Sanhedrin to, to bring Paul back in. So don't miss the irony here. These men make a promise to God <clears throat> to murder a fellow Jew who has, 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 has not been proven guilty of anything. Literally, it says they accursed themselves with a curse if they did not kill Paul. Now, I think it's safe to say, no matter how mean your boss is or your parents, there's nobody in here who is despised as much as Paul, hated as much as Paul. They're saying, we promise you, God, that, that we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. Because it's okay if we violate the law because he violated the law. Even though he didn't violate the law. Just a side note. Because we're beginning to see this same kind of thing in our culture. When people become gripped by this kind of personal hatred and, and irrational rage... Logic and common sense is the first thing to go out the window. It's just the way it always is. But thankfully, Paul had an ally. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, that'd be Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. 
And then in, in verses 18 through 22, this young man goes to the tribune and tells the tribune what's going to, what's going to happen. So this is a pretty brave young man. Uh, basically what the language is saying here is that he's probably in his young teens. But I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that Paul hadn't planned on any of this. He knew there was going to be tribulations on his, on his way, but he hadn't planned on any of this. In his letter to the Romans, Paul explained that he was expecting to come back to Jerusalem, bring this alms, this, this gift to the, to the church in Jerusalem, and then he was going to spend a little time there, and then he was going to travel to Rome, hang out there for a second, and then hopefully go on to Spain. That wasn't God's plan. Paul is arrested, and thankfully, providentially, he's able to escape this plot. But he doesn't know that. That's not how uh, it always happens for God's people. Remember Stephen? Paul's probably sitting in the same jail cell as Stephen had. Things turned out a lot differently for Stephen than they did for Paul. The Romans didn't step in and save Stephen. Stephen got stoned to death. But God's plan for Paul was to proclaim the gospel to all of the higher ranks of the Roman government. So remember this the next time something happens to you that you don't understand, when it's not your plan. What better way for Paul to be able to proclaim the gospel to the tribune and to the governor and then to Felix and then to Agrippa and then all the way to the officials in Rome than to be arrested and work his way up this ladder of appeals? God is intent. He's focused on spreading his gospel. And the more we can, we can, we can wrap our minds around that and, and shape our lives by that, then when things happen to us that we don't plan, they're not bad things. They're just a different venue for us to share the gospel. God still works this way. Look at verse 23. Then he, that's the tribune, because of this plot, he called two of the sentries and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Phoenix or Felix, the governor. So, so this tribune sent 470 soldiers to protect Paul on the 50 to 60 mile journey to Caesarea. Now that, that sounds excessive. But remember, they're going off the information of a young teen, so they're not quite sure how, how much that is. And at this point in time in Israel, there's just riot after riot after riot. So they want to be very sure. If, if, if you'll remember, Rome didn't care about a lot of things. They, they, their citizens had their rights, but they wanted peace among their subjugated people at all costs. It was called the Pax Romana. It was basically peace by violence. So, so in order to ensure that it was clear to any mob that might want to try to start something that they weren't going to get very far. This tribune sends 470 soldiers with Paul. And the tribune wrote a letter to the governor, his boss, named Felix, to this effect, in verse 25. He says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. He doesn't say how he learned that, but he just says that. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. 
I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there, should, there would be a plot against him, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So this tribune, he paints a little bit of a rosy picture about what's going on. He's saying, Felix, we had a minor squabble, but listen, I've been on top of this thing the whole time. This man is a Roman citizen, so I protect him and saved him from this unruly mob. We definitely didn't whip him. We wouldn't do that. He's, not a, he's a Roman citizen, so we sent him up to you. But here's what, this is what's interesting. This Roman official comes to the exact same conclusion about Paul as another Roman official named Pilate came to about Jesus. I find nothing against this man, no reason for him to, to be executed. And again, Paul finds himself following so closely in the steps of his Savior. But I want to see if you remember something. Do you remember what was the name of the man who Luke is writing Acts to? Okay, good. Some of you remembered that. Why does that matter? I want you to notice that this tribune calls Felix in verse 28, his excellency. And in a few minutes, we're going to see a lawyer also call him most excellent Felix. So remember, Luke called Theophilus most excellent Theophilus. So this term excellency or most excellent is a, is a term that was reserved for, for ranking officials in the Roman government. So, so Theophilus is also some high-ranking Roman official that was new to the Christian way, and Luke is writing to him to explain him these things. And so part of what Luke wants Theophilus to see very clearly is, look, most excellent Theophilus, look, this neutral party, one of your buddies, recognized that Paul had done nothing wrong. So Paul makes it to Caesarea. Felix sets a trial date for when his accusers can get there. Now, I want to stop briefly and let's just wonder together. You know, it's been a couple of days. Those guys back in Jerusalem, are they starting to get hungry yet? Just wonder. But nevertheless, the, the, the day comes. Paul's accusers show up with their lawyer. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, did you hear the story about the lawyer who, uh, lawyer who when he woke up in the, in the recovery room after his surgery, he asked the nurse why all the blinds were closed. And the nurse replied that, well, there was a fire across the street and we didn't want you to think you had died during surgery. Now, I know there are good lawyers. I've heard of them. But this is not a good lawyer. The theme music in the background was... Dun, 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 Look at it this way. Tertullus is a Greek name through and through. This guy is as Greek as they come. So what Luke is, is, is exposing here is that these high priests are infuriated that Paul would, would hang out with Gentiles, but they have no problem using a high-dollar Greek lawyer to try their case before Felix. Anyway, look at verse 2 and 3. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, 
Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Now the literal translation of that in the Greek is... Okay. Oh, most excellent Felix. I'm so glad to be here, Your Honor. Everything you do is amazing. How's the wife doing? She doing good? Good, right? How are the kids? He's laying it on thick. But it's somewhat understandable if you, begin, if you understand who Felix was. Felix was the first person in Roman history to go from being a slave to a Roman official. And to get an idea of what that looked like, another Roman wrote about Felix this, quote, With all forms of cruelty and lust, Felix wielded a king's power with the spirit of a slave. So basically, Felix enjoyed using his authority to punish people who used to enslave him. And Felix was especially ruthless to the Jews. He was the most crucifying Roman official uh, in history of Judea. So Tertullus is hoping to get on this guy's good side and make quick work of this trial. If we can get Felix against the Jews, he'll crucify these guys right away. We'll be done. We can go home. And you can see in verse 5 the main accusation he makes. He says, For we have found this man a plague. He calls Paul a plague, and then he makes three allegations to support that point. First, he says, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So first, he says he stirs up riots. Romans don't like that. Second, he says he's the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes. Now, that's interesting because Tertullus can't bring himself to say the way, which is what they were Christians were clearly known as by this time. But he won't dignify them with this acknowledgement of their existence by calling them the way. He won't legitimize them in front of Felix. Instead, he calls them uh, a, a sect of Nazarenes, which is basically another way of saying that, that Paul was the ringleader of a bunch of backwoods regnecks. And thirdly, this is interesting, he saves both the main reason the Jews want Paul dead and the least important reason to Felix for the end. He says he defiled the temple. So he's kind of like, he stirs up riots. He's the ringleader of a sect. He defamed the temple, but mostly he stirs up riots. It's kind of what he's saying. Then the rest of the guys jump in. And Paul makes his defense after these guys jump in. Felix looks at Paul, gives him the okay, now you're allowed to speak. And listen to Paul's defense beginning in verse 10. And then the governor had nodded to him, that's Paul, to speak. And Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what, what, what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. And there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. 
Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found uh, when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul refutes every one of their charges. Watch how he knocks them all down. They say he was stirring up riots. But Paul says, you can verify that I haven't been in Jerusalem for years and I barely came back like a few days ago. Not even close to enough time to, to, to organize something like this. They say that I'm the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes. And Paul says, no, no, no. Not only is this not a sect. He says, I worship the God of our fathers just like they do. I believe that, that every jot and tittle of the law that they believe is true. We believe in the same resurrection of the just. This isn't something new. And they say that I defiled the temple, but I wasn't defiling the temple. When they found me, I was alone and purified in the temple. And then he makes a very smart move. Paul says, you know, according to Roman law, I should be confronted by my accusers. And these guys aren't the ones who, who accused me. It was the Jews from Asia. They are the ones who should be here. Just ask these men if they witnessed anything they just said. So Paul not only refutes what they say point by point, but then he challenges their whole legal claim to bring prosecution against, the, against him. But, but Paul, basically, Paul does not concede on any of their points except for one. There is one accusation he will accept, and it's in verse 21. And it's the verse I want to camp out on. Paul says, I am innocent of all of these charges other than this one thing that I did cry out before all of them, he said it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, on the one hand, this is a very tactically shrewd defense because what Paul has done is, is he's made the main point of contention, not a, not a, not a, not a, he's made it a theological one, not a civil one. The Romans cared about riots and murderers and traitors and, and rebels. So long as it didn't cause any civil unrest, they, they weren't overly concerned with local squabbles over theology. So, so Paul's very shrewd to turn this defense away from a confession of guilt to a confession of faith. But he's willing to concede, concede this one issue, that I cry out about the resurrection, that this is what this is about. So here's the important thing I want you to see. This is what this whole passage hangs on. Who said anything about resurrection? What does resurrection have to do with anything? I mean, we might say that Paul was being smart because he was trying to divide the religious leaders again. But how can he say, I'm here because of the resurrection? When nobody said anything about the resurrection. Who's talking about the resurrection? The council didn't say anything about the resurrection. I mean, they, 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 they fought about it, but, but Paul was the one who brought it up. Tertullus didn't say anything about the resurrection. 
He said Paul caused riots and defamed the temple, but he didn't say anything about the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a lot of accusations against him, but at this point, none of them were about the resurrection. So where I want to camp out for the rest of this morning is this. What does the resurrection have to do with anything? Why would Paul bring that one thing up when it wasn't even a matter of contention? What does the resurrection have to do with anything? The short answer is everything. The resurrection has everything to do with anything. Everything to do, everything that Paul is going through has to do with the resurrection. Now, most of the Jews had an expectation of resurrection from the dead. That's, that's a given. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. They, they had an understanding that there was a resurrection from the dead for both good and evil. Jesus believed it. In John chapter 5, he talked about the Son of Man giving life to those who have died. And remember in John, in, in John chapter 11 when Jesus was on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead and he ran into Martha, uh, uh, Lazarus' sister? And Jesus asked her, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you remember her answer? She said, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So even Martha had this understanding, this common Jewish understanding that there was a resurrection from the dead. But now Paul and the apostles are saying something slightly different. You could say they're adding something to it. They're, they're still saying there is a resurrection, but this is very important. Now they're saying that this resurrection is only because of this one man, Jesus Christ, has already been raised. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Peter is speaking, and it says, after he was done, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, in Jesus, that's a strange phrase. The priests were greatly annoyed. They were preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It doesn't say they were proclaiming resurrection from the dead. The priests would have been okay with that. It doesn't say they were proclaiming Jesus resurrected from the dead. Although that is certainly the core of what they're saying. It says they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I want you to think of something. Think of, think you're going to go on a trip and you're going to get on an airplane. You're going to fly from here to somewhere else. On a commercial airliner. Several hundred miles an hour, 20, 30,000 feet in the air. Where do you want to be in proximity to that plane? Do you want to be with that plane? No. You, you can't follow that plane. That's not going to end well. You certainly can't lead that plane. I can't move my arms that fast. You want to be in that plane. The only way you can get from point A to point B is if you take advantage of the thrust and the lift of that plane by being in it. So, so when the apostles are talking about now resurrection in Christ, they don't mean when you have faith in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. Again, that's true, but it's just not what they're saying here. They're talking about something bigger. 
They proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It means this. They understood that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was just the beginning of a single event where all who believe would be raised from the dead. The empty tomb on Easter Sunday, it was just the first fruits of a final resurrection. It was the beginning of a single event. In other words, they were saying that the resurrection of the dead had begun. And how do we know the resurrection is true? How do we know it has begun? Because Jesus had been raised from the grave. Now, many people had been risen in the past, brought back from the dead. You have Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and those kind of people, but they were not resurrected. They got their old bodies back and then they died again. Jesus was different. He was resurrected and given a glorified body and he didn't die again. And it's in that resurrection, in Jesus, is the resurrection from the dead. And the reason that Jesus was resurrected from the dead was because he was righteous. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus didn't sin, so he could not stay dead. It couldn't hold him, the Bible says. And so because Jesus was, because Jesus was righteous, he was resurrected from the dead. Now back to our plane. Unless you are in that resurrection, unless you are in that righteousness, unless you take advantage of the thrust and the lift of his righteousness, you will not be resurrected from the dead. That's what they're saying. Only in not by, not behind, not in front, only in the resurrection because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ will you be saved and, ra and raised from the dead. They didn't like that one bit. Not by your own righteousness, only in Jesus Christ. So this is this event, this raising from the dead of all of these people that Christ is taking with him by his own righteousness. It's this single event that was begun by Jesus. That's why, did you know this? Everywhere else in the New Testament, about half the time that the New Testament talks about rising from the dead, it's in the past tense. You have been raised with him. The Bible says, because Jesus kicked off a single event of people rising with him, being resurrected because of his righteousness, because they were in him. So these apostles are saying that it is only in Jesus, only those who are raised with Jesus and like Jesus will be resurrected on the last day. So here's why resurrection from the dead has everything to do with this argument that Paul is having. Because Jesus had been raised, every single argument from the Sanhedrin was wrong. Think about it. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it means he wasn't just a Nazarene, he wasn't just a carpenter, he wasn't just a prophet, and he certainly wasn't a criminal. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and I mean resurrected, vindicated because of his righteousness and given a, given a, given a glorified body because he was perfect, if he, was, if he was resurrected from the dead, that means he was the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Mashiach who would come to save his people. 
Over and over again, this argument is made by the apostles. Acts 2.24, death could not hold him. Acts 3.14, he was the holy and righteous one who had been raised. Acts 4.10 and 12, God raised him so that healing and salvation would come in his name. Acts 13.30, God vindicated him by bringing him back to life. Acts 17.3, it meant that this Jesus whom God raised up was none other than the Christ. If Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, then he was the fulfillment of everything that they had been waiting for. He was the anointed king of Psalm 2. He was the holy one who could not see corruption of Psalm 16. He was the exalted Lord of David who would sit at the right hand of God Almighty in Psalm 110. Which meant that Paul was no ringleader of some backwoods sect whose leader died as a criminal. No, this was the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets had foretold. This may be a new movement, but it's a movement that's based on very old promises. Paul is no disturber of the peace. He's proclaiming the prince of peace. He's not some leader trying to lead people astray. He is leading people in the way and the truth and the life. And listen, here's the main point of contention. Here's what this means. If Jesus was raised from the dead, if Jesus resurrected from death, then it is the disciples of Jesus who were the true Jews, the true Israel, the true heirs to the promises made to the prophets and the patriarchs, not the priests and the Sanhedrin. These accusations made by these men have everything to do with the resurrection. I hope you can see that. The reason Paul is standing trial has everything to do with whether Jesus had been raised from the dead. Because if Jesus had come back to life, then Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the yes to all of God's promises. He is the risen one slain for the sins of the world. And if that's who Jesus was... If he had been raised, this is no sect of Nazarenes. This is the way of the one true God. Do you see how absolutely fundamental the resurrection is to everything? That Paul could truthfully say that, that everything you have against me, all of our disagreement comes down to this one question. Has Jesus Christ been raised from the dead? But here's the thing. What I want you guys to understand is this question still has everything to do with you and I. Has Jesus Christ been risen from the dead is still the most fundamental question of each and every one of our lives. Think about how the answer to this question ought to shape how we live. The dirty little secret of every human being on this planet is hidden shame. Is a wrecking ball of lives. It's this hidden secret shame that I'm inadequate. I can't, I, I can't do what I want to do. And that is inevitably followed by the, by the fear that I'm also powerless to change it. It's a dirty little secret of every single person, whether they admit it or not. So mankind, since the beginning of time, has clawed and scraped and worked and fought to do something to fix that. And they have failed over and over and over again. 
The Jews created hundreds of laws to follow, thinking that would get it. Islam requires you to travel all over the world amongst other major requirements, thinking that will get it. Buddhism requires that you live peacefully with everything. That will get it. In fact, listen to this. The American culture right now is developing a religion of its own. Our culture is, we're well on the way to developing our very own set of standards that will qualify you as an acceptable person. It's the same thing. If you're here this morning and you're fighting this battle on your own, this battle of shame and guilt and powerlessness, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You don't have to fight that fight anymore. Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, that baptism, now it stands as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus defeated death, that means he defeated sin. And if he defeated sin, then for those who believe, our identity is no longer dependent on our failure. If Jesus rose from the dead, our identity is now in his victory because he won the battle on our behalf. Now we are not the ones put to shame. Now the darkness of this world he put to open shame. Our sins he put to open shame by laying them on the cross, nailing them to the cross, Paul told us in Colossians. Therefore, Paul could tell us that Christ's resurrection has everything to do with our hope. Shame has been defeated, and now everything is about hope if Christ was raised from the dead. Which means Christ's resurrection has everything to do with our confidence. If we have hope, then we can be confident. If we are raised with Christ, then we will be raised in the last day. If Christ defeated sin and death, then we no longer have to be afraid to die. And if we're no longer afraid to die, then no one can harm us. What are you going to do? Kill me? Bring it. I want to die. I want to be there. Look what this does to our confidence in sharing the gospel. Look at verse 22. But Felix, after, after Paul's defense, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, that's Paul, he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now again, let's take a moment and wonder. Are those guys getting hungry yet? It's been two years now. I'd be getting kind of hangry. At least. But look at what the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant for Paul's confidence. Felix was a ruthless man, a brutal man, a bloodthirsty man. 
And not only had, had he been married multiple times, but at this point, he was married to a woman that he stole from another one of his family members. So when the person who held Paul's life in his hands could literally hang him on a cross for almost no reason, when Paul comes before this man to talk about the way, what does Paul say? Felix, you're a beautiful flower who just hasn't bloomed yet. No. Is he telling Felix, your best life can be today? No. Think more along the lines of Hugh Latimer. He reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. He said, Felix, righteousness, you need it. Because self-control, you don't have it. And Felix, there's a judgment coming. This is what Paul said to the guy who could hang him on a cross. That's the confidence he had because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. The resurrection of Christ still affects every part of our lives. Especially this one. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then He is also our Lord, not just our Savior. If He is our Lord, then we should not only listen to Him, but obey Him and worship Him. If He is Lord, then today matters. If He's risen, then the only way we can be raised is if we're in him and the only way that we can be in him is if we've submitted ourselves in faith to him through his word this is such an extremely huge issue to us if jesus was raised from the dead listen to this this is our lord if jesus was raised from the dead then daniel had seen him before Daniel said this about Jesus, if Jesus rose from the dead. He said, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, nor can it be destroyed. That's who Jesus is if he rose from the dead. He is our Lord. Therefore, there is nothing left to be said for us except that if Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead, we, you and I, right here this morning, and then with our lives and with our work and with our families and certainly with our mouths, we should join Paul in saying to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, What an amazing thing it is that you resurrected Jesus from the dead. Father, I, I, I pray that you would sink that truth into our hearts. Take it past our brains and into our feelings and our thoughts. Stick it in our minds like a splinter that won't go away. That we would just be stuck on pondering and meditating and, and worshiping and praying about Christ's resurrection. Show us the power 
as you said in your word of the resurrection. Show us your mercy in the resurrection. Father, show us your glory in the resurrection. And Father, give us a deep, deep desire to be in Christ. To be counted in his righteousness. And for that to be evident in how we live. Father, we pray this in his name because it is only in him that we can be, be brought to you. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The servers would come forward, please.